Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Jamie Boskett, and I'm coming to you from the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I'm pleased to welcome you to another in our at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. Uh, we miss seeing you in person, but I'm so thrilled and proud that we're able to continue on with this great content and to bring it directly to your home, so welcome. A special thank you to all of our members, which uh, truly through all that we've experienced the past several months, we could not be doing what we're doing without you. Uh, we, are, we are absolutely proud as an, as an organization to be able to maintain so much of the momentum and the, uh, the great excitement and vibrancy that this place has built over the past several years, uh, which we will continue on into the future with some very exciting uh, new work upcoming. But thank you to our members who, who allow this to happen. And, and a special thank you to all of our friends at the Garden Club of Virginia. Uh, you all have been absolutely remarkable partners over the past uh, year of planning up to the centennial moment and uh, to coordinate with our team on the wonderful exhibition here at the museum, A Landscape Saved. It's, it's, it's been a wonderful uh, collaborative opportunity for us. So we're, we're proud and thrilled for that. Uh, a few upcoming programs to share with you as we get started today. We have our next Curator Conversations, another in our new digital programming offerings. That is on September 21st at 10 a.m. Uh, virtual, of course, and this is to all of the VMHC members. So there's still a time. If you're not a member, I hope that you will join us uh, and, and you can join for that program on September 21st. On that day, Andrew Talkov, our Senior Director of Curatorial Affairs, will take you on a tour through the collection storage spaces here at the museum. Uh, part of this nearly quarter million square foot complex and share stories uh, from some of the four centuries of Virginia history that we focus on uh, specifically and how they relate to the nearly nine million items in our permanent collection. We also, for members of VMHC, an upcoming series, if you need some outdoor space and some relaxation with this beautiful new fall weather, uh, join us on Mondays at Virginia House, our property in Windsor Farm. So this will be the first Monday, will be September 21st also, from 5 to 7. Uh, you register in advance, you can bring a, a picnic and a bottle of wine, and enjoy the beautiful gardens, the, uh, the Gillette Gardens at Virginia House, uh, which is really, I think, a wonderful treat. There'll also be sessions on September 28th and also October 5th. Our live virtual gallery walks. This is new for us as well and something we're thrilled to offer. On September 23rd at 10 a.m., you'll be able to join members of our education team for free virtual exhibition highlight tours. Uh, topics covered during these 30-minute tours uh, change regularly, uh, so please do mark your calendars for the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month, and we'll explore the story of Virginia as well as several of our changing exhibitions. Uh, one other special treat, and you're actually the first people I'm showing this to, uh, but you're all going to get a sneak peek of our 2020 Virginia History Holiday Ornament. And this beautiful ornament 
is, is not simply a great way to support this institution during one of its most challenging times ever in its history, but it really is uh, uh, the perfect holiday gift and a way to add some uh, rich history to your tree this year. Uh, this year, uh, we are actually uh, celebrating the Garden Club of Virginia in this centennial year, and we're proud to feature this inspired ornament that's inspired by the anniversary, but also by a lovely work of art from our own permanent collection. Showcasing the towering heights of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the land that would one day become the Shenandoah National Park. Of course, the beauty of this landscape in this beautiful image uh, it was not preserved by accident. That was through work of the Garden Club to lead an educational campaign uh, that was part of what helped win public support for the creation of this treasured park. Uh, created between 1929 and 1935, as many of you know, Shenandoah National Park saved and safeguarded some 79,000 acres of wilderness. So if you're watching this today, and only if you're watching today, you can be among the first to pre-order this ornament at 25% off today only, uh, but technically through Friday, but act today is the best way. Go to shopvirginiahistory.org slash 2020 ornament. And this is important. The promo code you have to have, GARDEN25. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that as a special treat and a reminder of the great partnership between us and the Garden Club this year. Now onto today's lecture. Uh, first, I'll just remind you all, please, uh, feel free to share your comments and your questions as we go through the program. You can go ahead and put them in the chat function on Facebook or YouTube. And when we get to the conclusion, we'll review those and discuss them with the panelists. At its founding in 1920, the Garden Club of Virginia established a mission to celebrate and conserve the natural beauty of the Commonwealth and to challenge the public and future generations to join it in its preservation efforts. During its now 100 year history, its members have encouraged appreciation for landscape, advances in horticulture, and championed the preservation of land in general. Uh, we have monitored, they have monitored roadways throughout the state uh, and been, as the very first conservation organization of Virginia, they have been advocates for the formation of state park systems and even national park systems. You can learn more, of course, about this remarkable organization um, that I know many of you are members of and proud, proudly so, in the exhibition, A Landscape Save, which will be on display here at the museum through November 1. And uh, please just remember to purchase your tickets in advance, but we are open and we'd be thrilled to have you. Uh, in addition to the preservation efforts, the Garden Club has played a leadership role in restoring some of America's most significant gardens. And today that will be the focus of this conversation with two recent projects at Stratford Hall and Poplar Forest and the unexpected connection to each other. So thank you again for joining us. It is now my absolute pleasure uh, to turn over the presentation to Betsy Worthington, who is a member of the Garden Club's Restoration Committee. Thank you, Betsy, thank you all. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for that warm introduction and for the ongoing friendship between our two organizations and for giving us such wonderful support in this, our centennial year. Um, as you mentioned, 2020 marks the centennial of the Garden Club of Virginia. And we're so excited to have been invited to participate in this banner lecture series, even if it is only virtually. We're also grateful to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for partnering with us to showcase the wonderful exhibition, A Landscape Saved, the Garden Club of Virginia at 100. 
which is open at the museum from now until November 1st, and we hope you will plan a visit to learn more of our 100-year history. The Garden Club of Virginia was organized in May 1920 as a federation of eight founding member clubs from throughout the Commonwealth. Our membership in 2020 has grown to 48 member clubs, ranging from southwestern Virginia to the eastern shore. Throughout its 100 years, the GCB has held fast to its core mission to restore historic gardens and landscapes, conserve Virginia's natural resources, inspire a love of gardening, and provide education for its members and the general public. Since 1929, the Garden Club of Virginia has welcomed visitors from all over the world to Historic Garden Week, a statewide house and garden tour that holds the distinction of having been the first such organized fundraiser of its kind in America. First tour was held in 1929, 1930 was skipped, and since then has continued without interruption, except for the World War II years, and most recently during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. The proceeds from Historic Garden Week are used to fund the ongoing restoration and preservation of Virginia's public gardens and landscapes, as well as a research fellowship program for landscape architect students. More than 50 historic landscapes have been preserved throughout Virginia during our history, and over 30 graduate students have been awarded fellowships. Historic Garden Week made it possible to present $500,000 over five years to Virginia State Parks as our centennial gift to the Commonwealth. 29 state parks have received grants, enabling them to enhance their offerings to the people of Virginia. The Garden Club of Virginia is committed to conserving our natural resources through legislative advocacy, public education, and collaboration with other like-minded organizations. The GCB works to safeguard the environment. For 62 years, we have honored, offered an annual conservation forum to address environmental concerns. In addition, a conservation and environmental studies fellowship program is now in its sixth year. In the area of horticulture, flower arranging and horticulture exhibits, workshops, presentations, and events are offered throughout the year to promote knowledge, expertise, and reasonable and responsible gardening. To celebrate our centennial, we've been invited today to focus on several of our restoration projects and the impact that the Garden Club of Virginia has ha had on the preservation of these historic treasures. The Garden Club of Virginia has been fortunate to work with many outstanding and renowned landscape architects throughout our long history. Charles F. Gillette, Alden Hopkins, Arthur Shercliffe, Griswold, Winters and Swain, Mead Palmer, Rudy J. Fabretti, and since 1998, William D. Riley of Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, we will focus on two of Mr. Riley's most recent projects, Poplar Forest and Stratford Hall. Eric Probstein, 
Director of Archaeology and Landscapes for Poplar Forest, and Matt Peterschmidt, Director of Landscapes at Stratford Hall, will describe the restorations and their importance to their respective properties. We're going to begin with Eric, and let me tell you a little bit about him. Eric Probstein is the Director of Archaeology and Landscapes at Thomas Jefferson's Poplar Forest, a position which he's held since 2018. Previously, he served as Poplar Forest Senior Research Archaeologist as, and has been an active part of each landscape restoration project completed with the GCV over the past 10 years. Eric is excited to lead an interdisciplinary team of archaeologists and collaborative scholars to discover the hidden landscapes of Thomas Jefferson's private retreat and plantation, and to explore the lives of enslaved and free people who once lived there. This work has produced many pro professional presentations and publications, and has contributed toward educational programs, historic restorations, and museum exhibits for, the, for this National Historic Landmark. Eric received his undergraduate training in history and anthropology at Truman State University. He holds a master's degree in historical archeology span from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and earned his PhD in environmental dynamics from the University of Arkansas. He has taught and conducted research in Virginia, New York, Massachusetts, Arkansas, and Missouri, with research interests in plantation and ornamental landscapes, the archaeology of slavery, public archaeology, and environmental investigations of historic landscapes. When not exploring the past, Eric enjoys traveling and spending time with his wife and three children who make their home here in Lynchburg, Virginia. So, Eric, Tell us about Poplar Forest. Thank you so much, Betsy. I appreciate the invitation to be part of this event. And, uh, and thank you to the Garden Club for all their support uh, over the last 10 years as we've worked uh, at Poplar Forest exploring some really key elements of the ornamental landscape and bringing those to life. Um, to shift now to my presentation. And um, I'd like to start off by uh, in addition to thanking the, the Garden Club and the, the Garden Club's Restoration Committee, I want to thank Will Riley for all of his uh, collaborative work throughout these projects, the Garden Club's landscape architect. And it's been a really, a truly uh, great pleasure to be able to work with him through, through each of these um, and getting his insights, which some of which will be shared uh, through the course of this presentation, um, into Jefferson's design, both uh, at uh, Poplar Forest, but also his greater research into uh, what Jefferson's design was for Monticello and elsewhere. I also want to thank all of the members of the archaeology department who've worked on these projects over the years, um, the consultants we've worked with in particular, my friend and colleague Jack Gary, who began uh, leading this project uh, in 2010, and uh, whom I've kind of taken over the process of completing these projects and uh, the excitement of seeing them all come to fruition. So uh, I wanted to get those thanks uh, out there before beginning. And for some of you, um, you may be familiar with Poplar Forest. I know others, this may be your first time learning about Poplar Forest. So um, I wanted to give a, just a very brief background. Um, Poplar Forest today is located about an hour and a half southwest of Monticello by car. 
uh, originally would have taken about two to three days by carriage. And um, in terms of uh, Jefferson's connection to Poplar Forest, he inherited the property through his wife, uh, her, his wife's family in 1773. Uh, soon after that, he began, um, in addition to uh, continuing to have it run as a plantation, initially a tobacco plantation, began to think of it as a possible place for retreat where he could go to uh, escape life from Monticello. And over time, that became more and more of a busy uh, life, particularly as he entered uh, more deeply into public service. Um, it became uh, a great desire of his to be able to find a place to escape from, from that, to be able to indulge in some things that he enjoyed to do, uh, reading, writing, those types of things, as well as uh, building up and tearing down uh, the process of, of built architecture which he loved so much, and of course, landscape architecture, which he spent so much time uh, studying and devoting his uh, attentions to at Monticello and, and other properties that he was uh, involved with over the years. Poplar Forest today is uh, roughly 600 acres, 600 plus acres uh, of the original 5,000 acre plantation, much of which is undeveloped and includes large portions of historic fields that once comprised the plantation. We've studied dozens of archaeological sites. We're still in the process of discovering new ones. And uh, this includes uh, sites that predate Jefferson's time uh, and post-dated as well, but also that focus around his time owning the plantation and, and living uh, and uh, visiting uh, the retreat house. In addition uh, to um, focusing on Jefferson um, and his retreat, we've done a lot of work to look at uh, the enslaved uh, African-Americans who lived and worked at Poplar Forest uh, throughout the course of the plantation's history, beginning in the 1770s through Jefferson's time up to emancipation. Our attention has also been very much focused on the landscape and its changes over time, uh, both the agricultural and the natural landscapes, and in particular, a focus on how Jefferson transformed uh, the grounds around his retreat house, uh, specifically 10 acres square around his retreat house, uh, and then uh, kind of included that within a larger agricultural landscape. This included a 61 acre curtilage, uh, which had things such as stables, vegetable gardens, uh, slave quarters, an ornamental plant nursery, uh, and other activity spaces designed to both support uh, the activities happening in the retreat house, when he was in residence, but also the larger plantation, um, which was, uh, of course, an operation year round. Work at the, on the retreat house has taken place um, uh, on the direction of Travis, Travis McDonald for over 30 years, and um, it's nearing completion. Um, if you come to visit, you'll see the final details being added to the entablatures and, and, uh, and wall paint uh, being added as well in the next couple of years. So it's an exciting time to sort of see that piece, that restoration piece coming to completion. Much of this uh, early work, including um, looking toward the uh, wing of service rooms that was added adjacent to the octagonal retreat was done based on archaeological research. This included finding evidence of a kitchen and smokehouse, uh, a laundry, uh, and, a, and a storage space as well. As we, in the process of completing the restoration of the retreat house itself, we were excited and been very uh, uh, 
very grateful to the Garden Club for allowing us to begin the process of being able to explore and also uh, restore for the first time some really important landscape elements that were key to Jefferson's design at Poplar Forest. This includes a double row of trees west of the retreat house, two clumps of trees and oval shaped flower beds at the northwest and northeastern corners of the retreat, as well as a carriage circle and, uh, and oval bed of flowers north front of the retreat house. Our first project uh, was to look toward uh, a feature which is mentioned very briefly, uh, Jefferson's writings. Of course, he was such a thorough keeper of records. Uh, we do have mention of a, a double row of paper mulberry trees being planted from the stairway uh, to the mound, so the, on both the, the west and the east side of the retreat house. Beyond that, we don't know much more, except that um, these were part of a larger design, which Jefferson was creating, uh, with both built architecture and landscape architecture to uh, invoke um, Palladio's work. Um, this includes a, a poplar forest. Uh, it's a five-part design, which was inspiring the, the creation of poplar forests uh, landscape. And, and you can see the central pavilion being the uh, octagonal retreat house itself, two end pavilions by, created by mounds of earth, uh, which were dug uh, by hand by enslaved laborers at poplar forest, um, and then planted with ornamental trees. And then the two L's are um, wings created of initially of, of, of the paper mulberry trees. And so as we started to look for these really important pieces of the, the des design of the landscape that Jefferson had envisioned, we looked for very simple remains, the remains of plants, uh, the remains of tree roots, slightly darker stains in the ground against the red clay subsoil. And over time, um, able to essentially follow these out, follow out the where the roots ran, finding clusters of roots to be able to find patterns, um, which is what we love to do as archaeologists, finding patterns. And in this case, some very kind of exciting measurements, including uh, 30 feet uh, across uh, in terms of the width of these uh, these trees uh, as part that were located as part of the Adelaide, as well as the 20 foot interval, which we are pleased to see was also echoed on the uh, eastern side of the retreat house and plantings that were found in earlier during earlier work in the 1990s, uh, again, on a 20-foot interval. As we started to pull this all together and seeing those eight trees that compose this double row, one thing that was quite striking is um, just the realization that uh, both on the west side, as was the case on the east side, there's room for a wing to be placed within. Uh, this double row of trees. Uh, there's of course never a wing built on the west side for probably a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which could be Jefferson's financial troubles later in his life or simply not the need to have additional spaces in a place that was only occupied periodically. Um, but nonetheless, it was, um, they were planted with the, de the design that, that certainly a built wing could be added just as it was on the eastern side. The reason for this, uh, which um, I think is certainly the case at Poplar Forest and also as we'll see at Monticello, is that uh, the trees were planted first um, to be able to provide shade um, and particularly paper mulberry trees, which today we think of as almost a, a junk tree or a weed tree at the time was a new introduction to America. 
uh, no, at that time not thought of as an invasive species, but something that was wonderful in its ability to provide dense shade quickly. And here, just a year after the wing was built, Jefferson writes to his friend Charles Clay that um, the, their charming uh, near a porch, densely shading it. I think that's the uh, one of the really important keys of why Jefferson was using the landscape architecture. Um, in the case of the wing at Poplar Forest and also the dependencies at Monticello, uh, using the trees uh, as a guide prior to actually building uh, the dependencies or the wing itself uh, to provide shade. Um, and at Poplar Forest, we see that process at work. Uh, this is shortly after the, the trees were replanted, the, the double row is replanted. We see that just a couple of years later, how much they've grown. And then taken earlier this year, you can see uh, the paper mulberry trees and their, their full glory. And, and really the best time to see them is um, in the summertime. And this, this brings to mind really a wonderful quote from Jefferson that under the beaming constant and almost vertical sun of Virginia, shaders are Elysium and the apps are our heaven. And the absence of this, no beauty of the eye can be enjoyed. Um, and, you know, I think this is certainly an important piece um, to think of in terms of Jefferson's placement of trees and something that visitors now can fully experience at Poplar Forest. Speaking of uh, trees and, and their design, um, we were excited to be able to look closely at the clumps on either side of the retreat house, something that we've been exploring for many years, but had not had the opportunity to really bring all of that research together and add to it in preparation for a restoration. And um, really what we had known from Jefferson's writing, again, was fairly sparse, uh, that there was a clump of Athenium and balsam poplars at each corner of the house, intermixed with locusts, Kentucky coffee trees, uh, red buds, dogwoods, calacanthus, and tulip poplar. Our job was really to find what the arrangement of these trees were uh, their location and, and, and some evidence that might help us figure out what they're, uh, how they might have been placed in the landscape. Clumps are something that, like um, all of these landscape elements, Jefferson was really reading about from an early, very early time in his life um, and uh, continued to throughout his life and, and actually visiting and experiencing during his time in, in Europe and, and his, his visits to the English gardens. Um, and while he was overseas. Um, this is uh, a picture of several clumps at one of the English estates at that time. And you can see their use in the distance, uh, sort of framing views of the landscape, also along winding walks and framing uh, buildings that are kind of added to the landscape for ornament. And sometimes uh, the, the houses themselves uh, as part of these estates. And Jefferson certainly was playing with these ideas, his designs, uh, uh, throughout sort of the mature period of his landscape architecture. Uh, here we see um, white at the White House, there's a clump that's tucked into a winding walk. Um, here at Monticello, you, um, you see an iteration where uh, clumps are being planted uh, in, in between uh, oval shaped flower beds at the corners of the house. Um, so the Poplar Forest, we were looking um, and hoping to find sort of good evidence of where the, the edges of these clumps were. In fact, we did find uh, very definite evidence of roots, just as the way we found uh, the remains of the trees for the double row of paper mulberries. We did a lot of specialized analysis for this project. I simply don't have time to go through all of it, but one of the really uh, 
useful and kind of exciting discoveries we found as part of our clump research. Uh, you know, we included looking at things like pollen for a number of the projects. In this case, we looked at something uh, called phytoliths, which are fossilized plant remains. So essentially the fossilized remains of plant cells. And two types, or one, one of the types of plants that is particularly uh, easy to read for their phytoliths is, is grasses. And in this case, you can see sun-loving grass being very uh, prominent on the outskirts of this dense uh, uh, collection of, 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 of trees represented by the roots remains we found. And we see the shade-loving grasses being concentrated on the interior, which is really kind of a neat view to see how this landscape feature kind of dovetailed with the nearby uh, oval flower bed and the kind of the, the shade being cast historically from this, from this element to the landscape. Another really interesting piece was the geometry itself. Um, one thing that was really uh, fascinating to us was this 33 foot uh, measurement from the north portico to the center of the clumps. And we also saw uh, 33 feet across the clumps themselves. Um, this is something that struck a chord immediately with, uh, with Will, uh, Will Riley, as we were working with him on this project. Um, immediately uh, it came to mind that 33 feet is indeed the uh, measurement for one chain, the, the length of chain that Jefferson had at, uh, at Monticello, which was used for basic survey. And um, while at Poplar Forest, just before the clumps were planted, uh, lo and behold, we came across a letter uh, again between Thomas Jefferson and Charles Clay uh, of, of a, a chain and compass being sent uh, for Jefferson to use, no doubt, uh, in order to place these clumps on the landscape. What was even more uh, amazing is when we looked at the clumps themselves initially, they looked very uh, random in appearance, very naturalistic, which was uh, certainly the design of uh, that Jefferson was was going for for his his uh, efforts at, at Poplar Forest and Monticello as well. Um, but when we looked closer, uh, Will noticed uh, a very um, fascinating connection between a spiral design, which is something that that came to him based out of years of looking at the garden literature as well as some of the previous designs of Monticello uh, fitting directly over top of the planting remains we found at Poplar Forest. Um, we can see here in just a, a schematic sketch from 1808 uh, again showing this idea of spirals being something that could be possibly used in the landscape likely never placed in this way uh, but um, certainly something that he was he was thinking about and, and could have been already located in the landscape from earlier plantings of clumps at Monticello. Um, we see here the trees located with a very light pencil mark, again, kind of marking that, uh, that spiral, but yet maintaining a very natural appearance. And you can see a poplar forest here in the spring as we took the picture, really um, underscoring that. It's very natural, but yet uh, closely tied to uh, an underlying mathematical uh, design, which was key to all of Jefferson's ornamental landscape as well as his, his, uh, his uh, built architecture. This turned our attention toward the, uh, the carriage turnaround and, and kind of looking at some of the, um, the questions that we long wanted to answer with, with that, that area, including uh, the boxwoods, which were at the center, this large boxwood maze. 
One of the, the long-standing questions from the very beginning, uh, when, when research began in the late 80s, early 90s, was was these were these boxwoods uh, of Jefferson's design, or did they post-date Jefferson? And what we literally had to do was get in amongst them and get below them uh, to get to the heart of what the answer was to this question. And we found, uh, in fact, uh, numerous earlier plantings um, that predated the boxwoods, including this long linear bed that literally went beneath the boxwood maze. It included artifacts. In this case, here's a piece of ceramic that dates to the 1830s and 40s, clearly after Jefferson's time at Poplar Forest, which ended in the 18, early 1820s, uh, him dying in 1826. And so we knew without a doubt that, um, that these boxwoods were a later addition to the landscape. And we took uh, numerous samples and they're still being propagated today and certainly can be purchased at our museum shop. But we've made the decision uh, to remove those boxwoods in order to be able to get at uh, Jefferson's original uh, intent uh, for his uh, ornamental landscape design, which has been really uh, important and, and freeing in our ability to be able to explore elements such as the carriage turnaround. Um, the geometry of this uh, landscape feature is very reminiscent of some earlier designs Jefferson created. Uh, in this case, at Monticello never executed, we believe. Um, it's 80 feet across, both at Poplar Forest and in this, this schematic on the right side of the screen. Um, 12 and a half feet uh, within the carriage circle, 15 feet at the approach. Um, Jefferson makes the note of uh, coach and six will turn in 80 feet back in the 1772. Uh, really kind of a fun thing to think about. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of like the Queen of England coming to visit, you know, very uh, uh, sort of digni uh, high dignitaries would be riding a coach and six. Jefferson himself rode with a, a coach and four. And uh, it's fun to th think about his mindset, I guess, for Poplar Forest. Uh, interesting to think about it, I guess. And that he was uh, likely, with a few exceptions, the, the only person who would have been, you know, using this approach uh, with, with a, a large, team and a coach. So um, uh, certainly something that it was fascinating to look at um, how Jefferson kind of executed some earlier thoughts about a carriage circle uh, from elsewhere here at Poplar Forest. And what we found was uh, numerous quartz cobbles, which were collected from the surrounding fields and rammed hard down into the underlying clay, which was uh, uh, sort of the remains of the historic field that was left behind after the ground was landscaped uh, by enslaved laborers, flattened, and then rammed hard with these cobbles by enslaved laborers who collected them from the surrounding fields. The process of doing this project was, was, uh, was quite uh, exciting as we were able to reveal its full geometry over the course of several months in 2018. Uh, by the end of October, we had fully uncovered its extent and gone to painstaking uh, levels of uh, detail in terms of recording each and every stone present. Here you can see a 3D model of the carriage turnaround surface created by Dr. Brian Crane, who partnered with us to do photogrammetry for this project. Uh, we were able to use a flattened 2D images of this to make extremely detailed uh, plans for the restoration, which were undertaken by Will Riley and his team, including Jennifer Esser, uh, Will, Will did an extraordinary job working with us um, 
in order to create a plan that would essentially float above a restored service that people can interact with that floated above the original service in order to preserve that uh, for future generations. And uh, of course, this restoration surface was one that was inspired directly by the original, using original materials and, and doing uh, extraordinary work to match it, both in terms of the geometry and uh, the design and, and the materials used to, the, to what it was originally used. Uh, at Poplar Forest. This is showing right before uh, work began on, on kind of putting the restoration uh, surface into place uh, with a layer of gravel and filter cloth protecting the original and a two by three foot uh, viewing window to be able to glimpse the original surface and think about uh, those people who uh, enslaved African-Americans who originally created it as well as Jefferson's original design for, the, for, the, for this uh, this restoration project that was inspired uh, that is that was inspired by the original archaeological remains. Um, you can see uh, the level of work and detail being placed uh, by Charles Funk and, and his team of masons working, uh, laying over 40,000 uh, quartz cobblestones uh, in place, tightly packing them just as the original was, with uh, a mortar that matches exactly the color of soil found uh, archaeologically. Um, other details such as bricks, um, native stone added along the way uh, to both uh, underscore the authenticity of the restoration, but also in some cases providing stories for visitors to learn about how we dated the surface itself and, and realized it was in fact um, uh, part of Jefferson's original design. Here we see uh, Mr. Jefferson coming to visit uh, with, uh, with the Masons as they're getting ready to complete their work. Um, and here it is in, in the spring uh, of this year, just, just a wonderful to be able to see uh, the turnaround completed and tying together the clumps of the double row of trees, um, kind of preparing the way uh, for us to complete the restoration of the front of the house and be able to see it as Jefferson had envisioned it uh, whenever he began uh, putting together his retreat and then kind of creating his mature ornamental landscape around that uh, over 200 years ago. The last piece of this is to add in three opal beds, uh, which, um, which two of which have been found archeologically uh, during some of our previous work and work we completed as part of our partnership with the Garden Club of Virginia um, on the Northeast and Northwestern sides uh, of the carriage circle. And then the look, looking for a, a third bed, which has been elusive, we looked very carefully at the center, where we assumed it would be at the center of the carriage circle. Uh, working with Will, uh, Riley, we, we went back and, um, and explored other possibilities. And one that really became very, uh, very plausible was that it was rather than the center, that ovals were often placed on the edges uh, of, of circles. And, so we looked at the northern portion as well as the southern portion of the turnaround. You, here you can see evidence of one of the oval beds, the slightly darker colored soil, and also remains of plantings that were placed. This is at the north uh, eastern uh, corner of the house. And then as we did work uh, within the center circle this past fall into the spring, we found um, definite remains uh, of, this, of this feature. Um, a wonderfully preserved portion of it, uh, which is allowing us to be able to fully understand its original geometry. We found uh, evidence of, of 
plantings um, from the central bed of roses so that we're able to uh, have historical uh, uh, evidence to help um, help us guide where where um, the roses will be planted when they're restored this coming fall. We found artifacts that confirmed, in fact, this was from Jefferson's retreat. Here you see um, the locations of where those beds will be placed. Um, work will begin this fall, and I encourage everyone to come out and, and visit us, and certainly come 2021 as we all look forward to the spring and hopefully more open conditions and beautiful weather uh, to be able to see these, these elements put back uh, just as they, where they were placed in the original design Jefferson had created. This included large roses of different kinds in the north front, uh, dwarf roses at the northeast, both of which Will has been working closely with Peggy Cornett at Monticello, who's the leading expert in Jefferson and roses, and, and uh, choosing just uh, the right historic uh, plants to, uh, to be able to pick from for uh, these uh, restorations of poplar forest. And uh, bristly locusts are, are Robinia hipspida, which is at the northwestern bed. Um, these will all be the first uh, kind of truly Jefferson-inspired um, uh, restorations and that they're, they use the exact species uh, and the exact placement of where the original uh, beds were, were located anywhere. And so we're really excited uh, to be able to have this as sort of the last piece of this wonderful uh, partnership that's lasted these past 10 years, uh, celebrating it now the centennial celebration of the Garden Club, and uh, and we couldn't be happier to have been able to work alongside the Garden Club to make all of this possible and be able to share it with visitors for years to come. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. It has been a wonderful relationship. I am fortunate to be in Lynchburg and, and able to visit and see the changes taking place and we're excited about the oval beds being installed this fall. Many thanks to you and to the executive director Allison Ramsey for all of your collaboration and support. Now we'll move from Lynchburg to the Northern Neck and, and Stratford Hall. I'd like to introduce to you Matt Peterschmidt. Matt describes himself as a solid transplant to Virginia having been born in Miami, Florida, and moving to Alexandria in the 1970s from Cincinnati, Ohio. With Virginia's usually well-defined four seasons, there's not been a need to look elsewhere to live and practice horticulture. Matt has a BS from Virginia Tech in horticulture, focusing on landscape design. He paid his horticultural dues, working a landscape nursery for over nine years. Matt started as head gardener at George Washington's Mount Vernon, then moved to garden and greenhouse supervisor, and finally to garden specialist. At Mount Vernon, Matt was responsible for all aspects of the historical garden horticulture, including the 1930s vegetable garden, the upper garden's flower garden, the fruit tree and nursery, along with the production greenhouse. Seven years ago, he was hired as Stratford Hall's first director of landscapes. Here, he manages 1,800 acres owned by the association that includes the Garden Club of Virginia's second restored garden. He has had great pleasure, had the great pleasure of working with the Garden Club and Will Riley on their latest gift, gifted to Stratford Hall and to the Commonwealth of Virginia. On the personal side of life, 
Matt is married with two children living in Westmoreland County, Virginia, where they're all enjoying living in the slow-paced country life and so the hustle and bustle of Northern Virginia. Matt, share Stratford Hall with us. Thank you very much, Betsy, and I'm uh, for your introduction there, and welcome to my residence. Um, I have to say, uh, um, albeit that this is conversation will bring in uh, Thomas Jefferson, I do have to say, go Hokies for all those Virginia Tech alumni out there today. And I am honored and blessed uh, to, to go over today with you all the relationship between the Garden Club of Virginia and Stratford Hall. As mentioned, Stratford Hall was the second design that was installed by the Garden Club of Virginia in the 1930s, the first being Kenmore. So we have some history, it goes back many, many years, and it's been a great relationship. For those who haven't seen Stratford Hall in a while, I do, let me go through a few things about the house and the grounds. The house itself is a very unique house. It is H-shaped with an east and west wing with the two very large dominant chimney stacks, and then a center hall that uh, we actually call the Great Hall that combines them both. The house itself was started in the 1730s by Thomas Lee, and then it stayed into the Lee family for another four generations until 1822. The house at that point was sold to private hands, and it wasn't until 1929 that it was purchased by the Robert E. Lee Memorial Foundation later to be renamed the Robert E. Lee Memorial Association. Now, I have to say that the thought of that I was given on this topic of what would the Stratford Hall landscape look like without the Garden Club of Virginia, I sometimes can be a literalist, so you can talk to my wife and my kids about that. So one of the things I thought of was if the Garden Club of Virginia hadn't helped us, would this be the front of the house? Kind of a builder special, as I would call it. You've got an ornamental tree on one side with a massive azaleas underneath it, hollies as a foundation plant, some interesting spirals or junipers by the front door, maybe the, the stone walkway. And then you've also got a, a, a concrete water feature over there as well. Oh, now, what if, if it had been more of a naturalistic landscape, more wildflowers that's, that's good for the environment, the animals and the insects? I personally like more of a basic landscape, show off the house a little bit more. Now, unfortunately, this is what I call the Home Depot landscape. You've got your Bradford pears, your forsythia, your rhododendrons, which are not going to grow out in the full sun, as well as kind of the overused Adirondack chairs sitting in the front. Well, thankfully, in 1929, none of that happened. The Garden Club of Virginia and the board here at Stratford Hall get together and they decide it's a great collaboration and a great opportunity for the Garden Club of Virginia to help recreate the grounds and the gardens here at Stratford Hall. So author Arthur Shercliffe, who had been working at the, the Colonial Williamsburg, was hired to do landscape archeology, span um, kind of a new science back then. It may look like these men are digging pipe trenches. Well, that's kind of what it did look like. The idea of removing soil carefully Finding those artifacts that Eric talks about was not really thought of back there in the 1930s. They were looking more at the topography. They were looking for foundations. 1933, Morley Williams is hired. And this is a map of what he drew up of the archaeology in the East Garden. Some of the features that they found were garden walls to the north and south. 
a haha wall to the east, a evidence of what they believe was a center path leading from the house through the garden. But most interestingly was garden beds, 18th century garden beds. They actually listed them as asparagus beds. Unfortunately, you can see this and there's not a lot of information that we could gather from the archeology, span even the science of what it was back then. Morley Williams decides this garden, this is a great an example of colonial revival. He did use um, the evidence, some of the evidence they found, they put the brick walls back in, they put the ha-ha wall back in, they put the center path back in, they even terraced the garden like it was, but noticeably absent is actually those 18th century garden beds that were found. That notwithstanding, the plan was approved by both the Garden Club of Virginia and the uh, board here at Stratford Hall. So now it's time to bring on the boxwood. This is 1935 where the, the garden has been cleared, the paths basically have been formed, laid out, and now the large boxwoods that would be planted along the center pathway are starting to come in. Because what is a Virginia house without boxwood? It's, it's a shed, let's be honest. Now, you can also see that they had hundreds and hundreds of other boxwoods that would come in to, be, to form and plant the smaller shapes on either side of that center walkway. Albeit that these boxwoods are a dwarf boxwoods, also known as edging box, they do grow. So in the 1950s, you can still see the shapes and you can almost see in between the boxwoods. Well, 1970s come around, the boxwoods are now grown together. You can still see the shapes though, very impressive. But in the 2013, 2014 range, the boxwoods got so tall that they started sprouting four foot tall girls. Well, okay, they really, those I put in there, but it goes to show that boxwoods over time, any plant over time is going to continue to grow. And unfortunately, some of these boxwoods did start to decline and had to be removed. So that brought into the idea of where do we do? Do we have a garden makeover that, for the entire garden space? So in the early 2000s, the board here at Stratford Hall and the Garden Club of Virginia get together and they start talking about the possibilities. What should they do to this garden that needs some renovation? The decision basically came that Stratford Hall would fund the archeology. span We would go back, see what we could find and then kind of take it from there. Well, going back to that 1933 plan that Morley Williams put together, the evidence of those garden beds was very intriguing. So that's the first place that we went back to, basically to verify, were those beds there? Was there any other information that we could gather using more better techniques of the current garden archeology span processes, as you just saw Eric describe? Well, we were quite excited that we did find those 18th century garden beds exactly where they were supposed to be. We also found the, the uh, brick rubble or trashed brick that was put at the bottom of those beds in theory for draining. This is, uh, you can see this, that's Will Riley on the left, Paul Reber, our executive director at the time, and Dennis Pogue, who had been working um, at Mount Vernon and came to do this uh, project for us. Some of that brick rubble was actually removed and it showed that that was the depth of those beds, that there was only original planting soil underneath that garden soil. Unfortunately, we did do some phytolith testing as well. It came up on very inconclusive roses, oaks, grasses, 
that was not going to be what we were going to find, unfortunately, to lead us to where we were going to go after that. Some of the other archaeology we had done also showed us some 1930s feature. If you look at the bottom there, that brick rubble there, as excited as I was to see it, was actually from the 1930s. That was part of the path that was over there that had basically been abandoned and allowed plants allowed to grow over. The wire on top of that is a 1990s irrigation wire for an irrigation system that was installed at that point. So that first terrace of the garden is the area that we're looking at redoing. Now, that may sound kind of interesting. Why would we only do part of the garden? Well, as the great house displays rooms of the Lees of the four Lee generations that were here, why not display the garden in two different styles as well, two different time periods? The colonial revival style is an important type of landscaping on its own. This also would put Stratford Hall in a very unique position to show two styles of, of gardening, um, but that still didn't tell us what we were gonna put into that area, to, into that first terrace. So Will, who had been doing work, as Eric said, for Thomas Jefferson, researching that and many other projects, came across what he calls and refers to as his mystery plan or mystery design. It was in the papers of Thomas Jefferson and donated to the Massachusetts Historical Society by the Coolidge family. Will, taking a look at this plan, was very interested and intrigued in it. It did not have any notations on where it was designed or who it was designed for or even who did it. It did have some writings on it. And it was the research that he did in that. And he actually put together a great research um, article on that in the Southern Garden Historic Society's magazine, The Magnolia, this past year. It goes into the proportions because... As Eric mentioned, there's a lot of mathematics that went into gardens of that style, and I don't have time to go into that, nor do I actually understand it and explain it as well as Will does. So uh, I would suggest that you look that up. Now, he believed that that plan through his research dates back to around 1775, plus or minus about 20 years. We know for a fact that it was not planted here at Stratford, but there were a things that made it very suspicious and very possible that maybe parts of that design could have been, been employed here at some point. Those commonalities were the garden wall at the top and the bottom of the design, the three tiers. Now, tiers are actually very common in the Chesapeake Bay region for houses of this style and grandeur. The center path and axis also kind of common. The fact that the garden plan has the garden being three times the width of the house, well, our gardens here at Stratford Hall is, or is almost exactly three times the width of the house as well. But the one thing that was the most interesting and perplexing and exciting was that the ha-ha wall at the opposite end of the garden of the house that is on the mystery plan is also here at Stratford. And as Will describes, he doesn't know any other location in his research that has that same garden feature now, if you're not unaware of what a ha-ha wall is, it's a structure that would keep basically the farm animals out of your private space, or the household space, ornamental space. So it's dug into the ground where the farm animals can't get into your garden. But the interesting thing is it allows people within the garden to look out and over the wall into the environment beyond it. Very interesting feature um, employed at several different houses of this time period as well.
So throughout this entire process, Will and the Garden Club of Virginia, the Board of Stratford Hall, they're collaborating and we're all discussing what kind of options, how we would like it to look. And through all that collaboration, Will comes up with this rendered proposal. This proposal for the garden itself is kind of divided up into thirds. The center third, which would be, I consider the ornamental side of the garden has a large path down the center. It has sheared evergreens with ornamental plants underneath it and grass on either side, just like it was in the, mis the mystery plan that Will found. The outer two thirds would be vegetables, much more functional. And those vegetables would be hidden by three sides with a evergreen hedge and on the fourth side with an espalier, either fruit tree or vines. Now the garden walls against the, the, um, the garden beds along the brick walls would also be more ornamentals. Unfortunately, I do not have an aerial of what it was beforehand. That's before we got our drones, but the pink path or the pink highlighted here going left to right was the position of the original 1930s path. Well, that had to be removed for this garden to fit in and it was removed and moved closer to the house. And then that center path going top to bottom was going to be widened. Now for that construction to happen, unfortunately we did have to lose some trees. This black walnut had to go as well as this American holly. Neither one of those trees would have survived the construction damage to their roots. And unfortunately, most likely would have had to been removed later on. That center path, if it was going to be widened, we also would have to widen the center stairs. That meant some of the 1930s boxwoods would have to be removed up top. And then also some boxwoods and other plants that have been installed throughout the years would also have to be removed. I am a tree guy. I am a plant guy. But I have to say I was not. That was my dog. I was not concerned about losing these plants. First of all, I have over 2000 linear feet of boxwood I still have to take care of. I was actually much more excited about what was going to come in and what that future garden was going to look like once it got into place. To help with this design, we also put in a path that next to the garden, uh, the kitchen to the garden that would allow our visitors better and easier access to that garden. So here we are, our template is ready and it's time to start putting in the plants. Very exciting. Couldn't wait. So the ewes are put in. The smaller ewes on the left-hand side are the ones that would surround the vegetable beds. And then these larger ones would be and are the ones that went into the center pathway. The espaliers went in for the fruit trees and the soil was amended for the vegetable area, the perennial area, and even the turf grass. Here's an aerial view of what that looked like. And now it's time for the perennials, the grass, and the vegetables. You can see here the center on the left with the um, all the plant material that would be going in there and the walled bed on the right hand side here's where the grass went in for the the grass area on the center as well as the the pathways within the vegetable areas and around the u-hedge itself all right now there's that bird's eye view of that that garden you can see the, the nice wide path the u-hedges and also the center views going down the middle there those 18th century garden beds, as I mentioned, were noted as possibly being asparagus planting. So it was really great that we 
found a place to replant those asparagus back into this these beds and back at Stratford Hall. And here's that little dry looking thing is how asparagus are planted. It is a perennial. So I wanted to make sure that I amended the soil, mounted it up, added organic material, planted it correctly, just like they would have in the 1700s. Because it is a perennial, we should have a crop for the next 25 or 30 years. Now, earlier crops, you can see here, we have potatoes, we had onions, cabbage, and the such. What, peas were also um, that one of those first crops. Um, I have to say that our lettuce crop, which I was also excited about, was pretty much taken care of as we fed the local groundhog population. Now, the list for the vegetables came from Richard Henry Lee, who used to own Chantilly. Chantilly is three miles to the east of here. And Richard Henry Lee is the brother to Philip Ludwell Lee, who owned Stratford from the 1750 through 1775. So it makes common sense that they would have been sharing plants. Richard Henry Lee wrote in the 1780s and 1790s his memorandums, and we have that here at Stratford Hall. So we were able to extrapolate many plants from there. The plant on the left is a, is um, artichoke, and the one on the right is the a fava bean. And I have to say, last year's mild winter in Virginia was a was a great year for fava beans. I've never had such great success, and I'm looking forward to them for next year. Now, Richard Henry Lee's list also included, well, 10 different peas. Unfortunately, most of those have probably been lost. So if anybody ever hears of or sees the George Turberville's 40-day pea, I would love to have it back here at Stratford Hall, something that wasn't probably has been lost, and, and I don't know if anyone could ever find it, but it would be so great to be able to bring back a plant that was most likely here. Now, the, the fruit trees uh, on the spaliers, you can see them growing, and then the pink carnations down the center pathway here. Now, those plants, the perennial plants and uh, the such, were actually taken from numerous lists that are have been researched over the 50, 60, 70 years, a lot of them by the landscape architects with the Garden Club of Virginia. The fritillaria on the left-hand side are also called crown imperial. The dianthus and the basket of gold planted along the edge of the center path as well. The historic fruit trees that we have, the, the alpine strawberries, and if you've ever wanted to have a strawberry that bloomed all summer long, these are great. They're clump forming. They have a very small fruit, but extremely sweet. The pear trees, oddly enough, the first ones that were brought in did not match the spacing market of our espaliers, so we ended up having to actually start with seed, um, for one year plants actually. And that is, uh, we're planted the Bartlett and the Anjour. I apologize if I misenunciate that. But you can see here, we're actually training them ourselves. It'll take about four to five years before they'll start producing. Now the garden itself has been growing great. The asparagus is over four, five feet tall, thriving. The beans, potatoes have been doing great. I can't say as much for the lettuce and the cabbage because the groundhogs continue to come in and visit. But you can see on the walled garden bed, the columbine, the iris, the valerian, all thriving, doing exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. Now the yews down the center path are going to take several years to shape into the vision that Will had. They kind of went in as eight and nine foot green blobs. And here we are starting to learn, and we're gonna have to 
pretty much figure out on how to do this with some sort of template or strings on how to shape them all because the idea of shaping them all the same, getting them nice and tight and neat really will enhance the garden because that's how they should have been done. Now with every garden, um, there's always problems, but problems that can lead to opportunities. Here on the left-hand side, if you remember, 2019 was a very wet spring. The soil that was added and amended uh, to the vegetable bed, unfortunately became so wet, it was just mud. Well, this gave me the opportunity to hand turn the entire bed to try and break through that hard pan that had been created to get the soil to drain out so we could plant our vegetables. Mm -hmm. That path from 1930s that we removed, well, we didn't remove all of it. So unfortunately, some of the, the base of it still remains. And now I have the opportunity every once in a while to harvest some brick and some rock for some other landscaping possibilities. And if anybody who works in old gardens know, you sometimes those plans and where the utilities are, those go missing as the institutional knowledge kind of fades. Well, now I know where our two inch main line uh, is for irrigation and I have a new valve. It's quite exciting. So I really can't tell you, you know, how excited I am to have an, an appropriate garden that speaks of to the house and this 30 year history. It's not a garden of today's voices. It's not a garden that's done in today's thoughts or ideals, but one that actually has been created to enhance and to express what people were doing, how they lived, how they entertained back then. It's, it's, it's quite an honor to be sure to have such a unique garden out there. And so here it is, 2020. And the question that I was given was what would Stratford Hall's landscape look like if it were not for the extraordinary women of the Garden Club of Virginia? Well, with the gift that they gave, not just to Stratford Hall, but to Virginia and the entire gardening community is unimaginable. You know, now we have this unique and historically accurate 18th century garden design at a unique and historic 18th century house donated to us by a unique and historic group of very dedicated women. So what would Stratford Hall's landscape look like without the Garden Club of Virginia? Well, I have some ideas and some thoughts. Now, you may laugh at this, but you know it doesn't really match up with the style of the house, I agree, but it doesn't have any boxwoods, so it's got that going for it. So thank you very much. I think you can see why the Restoration Committee and the Garden Club of Virginia has such a wonderful time with these wonderful collaborations. Um, Matt's not only knowledgeable, but he has a great sense of humor. And if your day job doesn't work out, maybe you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's and work with them a little bit. I hope we have some time now for some Q&A. Um, once again, I can't thank you enough for participating in this, and I hope that it will pique your interest and that you will not only attend the exhibit at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, but will also go and visit Poplar Forest in Stratford Hall. Adam, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Betsy, Eric, and Matt, and Matt's dog. Sorry. <laughs> uh, 
we we have a couple of minutes for questions. Uh, again, I hope people are logged into Facebook uh, or into YouTube so that they can ask their questions. Um, very early on in the in the program, someone actually asked, "What is historical archaeology?" So I wonder whether uh, both of our experts could take uh, take us on sort of a Cliff Notes version of of what that is. <laughs> Happy, happy to do so. Um, in general terms, historical archaeology is the archaeology of the, the modern world it's been described as. So the last 500 years or so um, is usually the focus. Um, it tends to focus on combining written documents, oral histories, uh, material remains such as the artifacts and features, um, some of which we looked at today, uh, buildings, uh, all together to be able to better understand along with environmental information, um, people in the past. Um, and so that's, that's uh, in a nutshell what historical archeology span is. Matt, anything to add? Uh, I know what a Munsell chart is. That's your soil profile color, but um, I've always found it really unique and interesting as much as the, the the ground is disturbed to see features that in the ground that haven't been seen in centuries sometimes um the painstakingly slow process that it, they go through now and you know what they can do with testing the soil um and everything they can find just by that i think is, is quite exciting and interesting and if you ever anyone has a chance to see archaeologists in the ground uh, see what they're doing, ask them questions. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing to do. So I guess that begs the question, uh, when is the best time to go to visit your sites? Uh, not only to see the work that's going on, uh, but to enjoy the gardens in, uh, in full bloom. Um, anytime's a good time. You know, of course, COVID has made it a little more challenging, but we still offer, um, uh, tours uh, each day, seven days a week, um, which extend through most of the year. Um, and of course, uh, nothing's blooming in the in the winter time. But we have a, a couple of months where we're just open on weekends uh, in January and February and part of March. But otherwise, we're open uh, year round. And I, I recommend coming in the fall. It's beautiful in the fall. Um, the spring will be, as I mentioned, beautiful and exciting this year as we have the new uh, garden beds planted. So. Um, so I guess the short answer is 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 any time, but um, but it's particularly beautiful right now if you if you'd like to come visit or come this spring. And uh, of course, as Eric mentions, uh, we're at, due to COVID right now. We're actually closed Monday and Tuesdays, but um, the garden itself is is obviously it's the spring color is going to be there from April, well actually through March up and through June July. Um, it does tend to, to peter out a little bit after that, but uh, Stratford Hall with its 1,800 other acres is a, a large piece of property to um, experience and to, to walk around. We have two miles of beachfront uh, on the Potomac. So I know this is about the garden club and so I'll stick with the garden. Um, and I have to say the gardens themselves, even though during the winter, you're not gonna see anything blooming, it's still a very, um, introspective space to walk through as um, and why not? I mean, they, it's 
people at the time would have been walking and and visiting and go, going through the grounds all throughout the year, not just in the spring. So last question is for Betsy. Uh, <laughs> uh, everybody probably wants to know what's next for the Garden Club on their restoration list. Um, right now, we actually have a very exciting project going on at William and Mary. Um, we're working with William D. Wiley once again to recreate um, a Charles Gillette plan. Um, it's the Reevely, uh, the Reevely Garden at William and Mary. Um, it's the hardscape is almost in. Hopefully, the plantings will be coming soon. So um, that's kind of the big projects we had have going right now. Well, we'll keep a watchful eye on that. Uh, again, thank you all. Thank you, Betsy, Matt, and Eric for a wonderful program. Uh, and we can't say enough about the great work that the Garden Club of Virginia has done over the last century. And I know that we'll look forward to everything that, uh, that you'll contribute to the beauty and preservation of Virginia in the next century. So thank you all uh, for attending. Just a, a quick plug before we go. Uh, the next Banner Lecture will be on November 4th at noon. Uh, when Christian Keller will talk about the great partnership, Robert E. Lee Stonewall Jackson and the fate of the Confederacy. Again, thank you all for viewing and have a nice day and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you.